Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. We thank you for your love to us. We thank you for all your goodness to us. We uh, pray that our heart's desire would be you and you alone, to love you and you alone, to serve you and you alone. May this be true uh, in our hearts and lives, we pray. Meet with us now, we pray, Lord, as we look at your word together, speak to us, challenge us, change us, encourage us, transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what you see when you look at that picture. Just take a few moments to look at it. I wonder what you see when you look at it. Do you see a man playing a saxophone? Or do you see a lady with kind of hair down one side of her face? Depending on, I guess, apparently whether you're right-sided or left-sided or how all that works, depends what you'll see. It's amazing how people can look at the same thing and see something different. You can be looking at exactly the same thing, and yet one group of people will see one thing, and another group of people will see something different. Yesterday, uh, myself and a few others, in, including Daniel, uh, we, were, we were at the uh, rugby watching uh, the Falcons play uh, London Wasps, and um, there, there was a guy behind me, right behind me, and he was from Wasps. Very loud, I think he probably had too many liquid refreshments before the game, and Difficult to describe how painful it was. He was just non-stop, non-stop, very loud, very irritating, very annoying. Uh, and, but apart from that, every single thing that happened on the pitch, he just saw completely differently to how I saw it. And every single time the Falcons did something, he was shouting and disputing and, and am I watching the same game? Is this the, am I looking at the same game? Because clearly the way he's seeing this is not the way I'm seeing it. And I have to be honest, it tested every ounce of my grace. By the end of the game, I was um, a bit wound up. But it's interesting, isn't it, how one, one person can see the same thing and see things completely differently. We all do this all the time, actually, and not just in kind of uh, eye things like this or, or, or mind games like this, but actually in life in general. It's what we call a worldview that we have. Everybody has a worldview. They see the world through a particular way of looking, it, it's, it's as though we have, each have a set of glasses on with different color lenses in, and depending what color lenses you have on your glasses will depend how you will see the world. Depends how you see things. We all have a worldview, and our, our worldview is largely influenced by the world we grew up in, the culture that we were born and grew up into. It's largely influenced, too, by our parents' beliefs. They have a massive uh, impact on that. Our education system our education system, well, any education system is far from being neutral. It is heavily biased uh, towards the partic- a particular worldview and culture. And even things like the movies we watch and the books we read, they all reinforce the kind of worldview that we have, how we see the world around us. We can define a worldview as this, a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold, consciously or unconsciously, about the basic makeup of the world. It's a guy called James Sire who defined it as a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold consciously or unconsciously about the basic makeup of the world. Our worldview acts like a filter and we pass everything that happens around us through that filter in order for us to work out what it means, to, for, for, in order for us to work out what is happening and, and we come to our conclusions largely based on that worldview, that filter that we have. It happens without our even realising it. But if our worldview is wrong or it's faulty, then it will lead to us making wrong or faulty judgments uh, about our lives and about the world around us. If our worldview is wrong, 
it will lead to wrong judgments and wrong decisions in our own lives. Now, this is hugely generalistic, what I'm going to say now, but it it, it illustrates the point. Most people who grow up in sub-Saharan Africa and the Far East will, will generally have what's called an animistic worldview. And an animistic worldview generally holds that there is a creator or a uh, of, there is a creator God or, or gods, but that, that God or gods is, is so far removed from us. And instead, the animist will seek to channel what they believe is a neutral spiritual power, which can be uh, used for good or bad. And that neutral spiritual power is thought to be at work. And animists will try to channel that through consulting uh, someone like a shaman or a witch doctor, and they'll get involved in spells and charms. They'll believe in good and evil spirits, uh, which they will attempt to control for their own benefit. Uh, if they're able to do and say the right things. And, and people with an animistic worldview will be very superstitious. They will believe in omens. They will believe in good and bad luck and all of that kind of stuff. That, that's an animistic worldview, simplifying it. Most people who've grown up in the West have a modern worldview. People with a modern worldview will often accept the existence of God and spiritual things, but they'll relegate it uh, as being so far removed from everyday life that it's largely irrelevant. And instead, they'll focus on science and what is rational. And anything supernatural or miraculous will be viewed with great suspicion and would be generally largely dismissed uh, or ignored because it doesn't fit in with rational uh, thought and science and reason. That's the kind of modern worldview. And if you've grown up in the West, which, which most of us have in this room, then you will, that's that will be a dominant feature in the way that you think. That will be a, a hugely influencing worldview, especially if you're over 50. If you're younger than 50, it will be slightly different. But if you're over 50 and you've grown up in the UK, that will be your underlying worldview, even if perhaps you don't realise it. Then there's the postmodern worldview. And if you're sort of my age and under, I'm not 50, not as old as Paul. I'm not 50, I'm only 45. But around about my age, things changed and we entered into what's called the postmodern era. And a postmodernism is this worldview uh, which the younger you are, the more likely to, you be to, be, uh, to be influenced by that. So if you're a teenager, you're going to be massively influenced by postmodernism. Postmodernism holds that there isn't one absolute truth, but rather that each person is free to make up their own truth. If it works for you, then it's true. And it rejects any criticism of anybody else's truth. So if I believe X, Y, or Z, then it is my truth and it's just as valid as your truth, even if your truth is, is completely contrary to my truth. All truths are equal. Now, every human being has a worldview. There are others. There's atheistic materialism. That's another worldview. And there are other worldviews which are perhaps driven largely by a particular uh, religion. But these are some of the key ones. Everybody has a worldview. And whilst we might have a dominant worldview, depending on where we grew up and when we grew up and our parents and the influences, most people actually have a mix of worldviews. I don't think anybody really generally has one specific worldview. You will find people who will be largely driven by the modern worldview, but also influenced with a bit of animism without even realizing it and postmodernism and so on. So people actually have a whole mixture, but they will be largely a dominant worldview that every single human being has. But people do have a mix of worldviews. There's also a biblical worldview. What you might have guessed is that those worldviews are not the biblical worldview. There is a biblical worldview which is very different. Os Guinness has helpfully defined it like this. In the biblical view, truth is that which is ultimately, finally, and absolutely real, or the way it is. And therefore, it is utterly trustworthy and dependable, being grounded and anchored in God's own reality 
and truthfulness. Now, you can take a week to unpack that, but uh, I'll read that again. In the biblical view, truth is that which is ultimately, finally, and absolutely real all the way it is, and therefore it is utterly trustworthy and dependable, being grounded and anchored in God's own reality and truthfulness. So because God is truth, all genuine truth is God's truth, and it's true everywhere for everyone all the time. Okay, Because God is truth, all genuine truth is God's truth, and it's true everywhere for everyone all the time. And we find and we discover what God's truth is by reading the Bible. That's how we discover God's truth, by reading the Bible. And as we read the Bible, as we discover God's truth, we'll find that the biblical worldview, how we are meant to see the world around us, is actually quite different from every other worldview. So these various worldviews, and and there are others such as atheism, they're really quite different. And when two people with... Uh, differing worldviews come together, then you can get, often get friction. That happened for me yesterday. I had a Falcon's worldview. This big guy behind me had a Wasp's worldview, and there was a little bit of a clash. We didn't fall out, but uh, there was a clash in my, in my mind. Two worldviews, competing worldviews. Now, we find a clash of worldviews in the passage that we're going to look at today, uh, which is Acts, 21, uh, sorry, Acts 28, 1 to 16. Paul and his companions have been uh, experiencing a nightmare journey, They have been going across the Mediterranean from what is now modern-day Israel, and they've been trying to get to Rome. They had this terrible uh, storm, and Paul and his companions are shipwrecked, and they find themselves on the beach in Malta. I guess it's worse places to wash up in a uh, shipwreck, but um, anyway, it was was a bit of a nightmare journey. And they view their experiences in one way, whilst those that meet them view their experiences in quite a different way, because they have a different worldview. And as we read through this passage, I think what Luke is wanting us to see, really kind of wrestling with this passage this week, what is Luke trying to teach us here? What is he trying to show us? And I think what Luke's trying to help us to see is the contrasting ways in which two sets of people view the same events. One group of people in the, in the account see this as a, uh, with a biblical worldview, and therefore they come to the right choices and the right decisions. The other group see it through an animistic worldview, and they make quite wrong assumptions uh, based upon that worldview. So let's read Acts 28, 1 to 16 together, and we're going to see, maybe you can pick out these two different worldviews uh, that, uh, that, that, that Luke illustrates in this passage, uh, and then we're going to see how these worldviews collide uh, and what we can learn from that. So Acts 28, I'm going to read from verse 1 to 16, um, uh, so here we go. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from from the sea, justice, justice was the name of a goddess, by the way, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to set sail, 
They furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we, we reached Potwelly. There, we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So as Paul found himself on this beach and the islanders uh, greet them and, and so on, Paul helped gather wood for the fire. And a snake fastened itself onto Paul's hand. Now, it's not actually clear whether or not Paul was bitten or not. Luke doesn't say that. But the islanders certainly thought it had. It says this, When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. So Luke doesn't actually say that Paul had been bitten, and he doesn't claim that a miracle took place here. But the islanders arrived at that conclusion. That was certainly what they saw and what they thought was happening. And they arrived at their conclusions in, 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 in this part of the account based on their own worldview. They saw that Paul had, had survived the shipwreck, but now it looked as if he was about to die from a snake bite. And their animistic worldview led them to believe that the goddess Justice, that this goddess, which was a made-up goddess of the time, because she hadn't allowed, or because she had let Paul live, but then doesn't seem to be letting him live because he's about to die of this snake bite, they assumed in their, through their worldview, through their kind of mindset, that Paul was therefore a murderer. That's what happened to murderers. They believed that if somebody died in this way, then they were facing the wrath of the goddess Justice because they had murdered someone. And it's where we get the word justice from in the English language. They, they looked at a situation with a certain worldview. And as a result, they came to all sorts of wrong conclusions. And as it happened, Paul shook the snake off and it had no ill effects. Whether or not he was healed, Luke doesn't actually say. But either way, Paul shook the snake off and it suffered no ill effects. The people, it says, expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual to happen, happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. And then because, because Paul doesn't die, their faulty worldview led them to another wrong conclusion. They decided that the only way that someone could survive a snake bite like this was if he was a god, if he was divine. Now, of course, Luke wrote all of this down on one level to, just to record the events of how Paul and his team got from Israel to Rome. So on one level, this is just church history. But I also think that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is in this passage, he's comparing the non-biblical and therefore wrong worldview of the islanders and of the sailors with the biblical and therefore the true worldview of Paul and his team. And I think what, Paul, what Luke wants us to see as we look through this passage is how these two worldviews differ and what we can learn from that. And we see this a little bit later on where Luke goes into great detail as he describes the ship that they took to go up to Italy. It says this, After three months we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. Now, there's a little picture there uh, on this side. That's uh, an image of Castor and Pollux. And uh, on the other side is a figurehead on a ship. Uh, so, so if you imagine a figurehead like that, but with these two, these two sort of uh, gods together, that's what it would have looked like. This ship had a figurehead like this on the front with these two guys on the front of it. 
And Luke specifically tells us that the ship that they were on had this figurehead in the form of these two gods. And it was believed in the mythology of the day, in this animistic worldview, that these twin gods, Castor and Pollux, were the sons of Zeus. And if you wanted to have good fortune when you were sailing, you needed to have Castor and Pollux on your side. That was what was believed. And I think what Luke is trying to emphasize here was that these sailors were trusting in Castor and Pollux. That was what was at the front of their ship. That was all important to them. They had this animistic worldview. And they believed that if they kept these guys on their side, if, if they did certain things and kept these, these false gods uh, on their side, then they would have a safe journey at sea. Whereas Paul and his team were the complete opposite, weren't they? They were trusting in the one true God. The sailors had a wrong worldview and it led them to wrong behavior. They were putting empty faith and trust in these uh, images on the front of their boat. Paul and his team were trusting in the one true God. The sailors had a wrong worldview. It led them to wrong behavior. Paul and his team had a biblical worldview. And so, that, so they knew that their destiny wasn't in the hands of these twin gods. Their destiny was in the hands of the one true God. Not in the, in the hands of some kind of image of some man-made gods. The islanders also, they thought that Paul's life was in the hands of what they believed was this goddess called Justice. The sailors thought that their lives were in the hands of what they believed were these gods called Castor and Pollux. Paul and his team, on the other hand, they knew that their lives were in the hands of the one true God. And he was the one that they were putting their faith and their trust in. Way back in Acts 23, verse 11, we read these words. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So Paul was basing and living his life based upon the truth that he had had from the, from the one true God, from the Lord Jesus Christ. That was how Paul was living his life. That was how he viewed things. That was his worldview. That was what was driving him. And he was going, and he knew that his journey and his storm that he'd been through, was, as terrible as it was, wasn't anything to do with good luck or misfortune or these gods or that gods. He knew his life was in God's hands. And he was putting his faith and his trust in the Lord Jesus who had appeared to him. And we see that again in the account of the storm that we looked at last week. We read these words as Paul stood up and spoke to the sailors. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So Paul knew that it was Jesus that commanded his destiny. It wasn't Pollux. It wasn't Castor. It wasn't Justice. It wasn't any of these gods so-called it's not just that the sailors uh, or the people on Malta were particularly bad people or, you know, or terrible people because they had this wrong worldview. Actually, quite the opposite was true. They seemed to be in incredibly generous and kind people. Look, Luke says this in verse 2. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. The islanders, the islanders on Malta were, were incredibly generous, incredibly kind people, despite having a wrong worldview. And the Roman governor was also very generous, and he too would no doubt would have had a wrong worldview. He would have been somebody who would have worshipped a whole uh, variety of different gods and goddesses. Luke says this, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. Luke stresses the hospitality they received. Luke really goes out of his way to point out the hospitality that was received. And I think Luke, Luke is making this point that they didn't expect this from these people. They didn't know them. They didn't expect this. And yet they were treated really, really well. And in verse 10 he says this, They honoured us in many ways. And when we were ready to, to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. 
Luke really stresses how generous these people were. Despite the fact that Luke is showing us they had a faulty worldview, a wrong worldview, they were still wonderful people. They were still incredibly generous and incredibly kind to, to Paul and his team. But then Luke does something else. He also demonstrates and shows us the incredible generosity and hospitality of the Christians in this story too. He now describes the hospitality of people who have a biblical worldview. He says this in verse 13. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Potwelli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. Now Potwelli is now called Potswoli and it's a suburb of what is now Naples. And some friends of ours have actually planted a church in Potswoli. And uh, it's very like this one here. In fact, the guy who used to lead it, a guy called Patrizio Zacchetto, he's been and preached here in this church. Some of you might remember Patrizio. And you can go on summer teams with Glow, and you can go and reach out to the neighborhood of Pozzuoli. That's pretty cool, I think. You could actually go and preach the gospel somewhere where the Apostle Paul landed and was received by Christians there 2,000 years ago. But I think what Luke's doing here, he's contrasting and he's comparing. And he's showing, look, in, in Malta, Paul and his team received generous hospitality from the non-Christians there, people who had a faulty worldview. In Pozzuoli, they received generous hospitality from their fellow Christians. And as Paul and his team traveled northwards to Rome, Luke says this, he says, the brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Again, these folks go out of their way to come and help Paul, to be hospitable, to be generous, to be helpful to him. Some of these believers from Rome had traveled 43 miles to the Forum of Appius. It was the, the kind of equivalent of a motorway service station on the, on the Roman road, which was called the Appian Way. Another group of believers had come from Rome. They traveled 33 miles to what was called the Three Taverns. These are fellow believers in Jesus who'd gone out of their way to go and meet Paul, to welcome him, to supply his needs and to help him. And Luke says that this encouraged and strengthened Paul. So we've got two groups of people who are both very generous and hospitable. And I think Luke wants us to see this. These are all nice people. These are all good people. The difference between these two groups is that one group had a wrong worldview and one group had a true worldview. They were nice people, but the foundations that the first group were living by, their worldview was a faulty worldview. The foundations were wrong. And the way they viewed their world was wrong. They were sincere. These, po- these people were really sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. They were really sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. You know, it's not only Christians who are nice people. In fact, I've got some non-Christian friends who are nicer than some of the Christians I know. People are not nice based on whether they're Christians or not. People can be lovely, generous, incredibly sincere in their beliefs. People can be sincere and yet be sincerely wrong. The non-Christian people on the island were just as nice as the Christians in Pozzuoli and in Rome. The difference between these two groups of people was the foundation they were building their lives upon and the consequent worldview that each group had and what that meant then for their lives. And you know, it may be today that you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian. You haven't yet confessed your sins to God. You haven't bowed down and and accepted the Lord Jesus uh, as your saviour. You haven't thanked him for dying for you. You haven't... uh, pledged to follow him and received the eternal life that he offers. And you know, you might be the loveliest person in the world. You might be a wonderfully hospitable person. You might be a very generous and warm and welcoming person. You might be the loveliest person in the world. You might hold some really, really sincere beliefs. But if what you're putting your faith or your hope in is wrong or is faulty, then no amount of sincerity will help you. 
You can be the most sincere person, the most lovely person in the world, but if what you're putting your faith and you're trusting, if what you're hoping in is faulty, if it's wrong, then it won't help you. Jesus said these words. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, there's only one way to God. And there's only one way to live. And that way is the way of Jesus. And anything else that we trust in or rely on will fail to deliver. It won't enable us to have that relationship with God. Just think about it. Hinduism teaches that when a soul dies, it is reincarnated in another form. Christianity teaches that when a soul dies, it spends eternity in either heaven or hell. Atheists believe that we have no soul and therefore when we die, our existence comes to an end. Postmodernism says that you can uh, make up whatever you want to believe as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Now, can all those things be true? Can all of those things be true at the same time? Well, logic says that we will all have the same experience when we die, regardless of what we choose to believe before that event. Logic says that we will all have the same experience when we die, regardless of what we choose to believe before we die. So if Hindus are right, we will all be reincarnated. It doesn't matter what we believe now. If Hindus are right, we will all be reincarnated. If Christians are right, we will all stand before Jesus as our judge and we will spend eternity in either heaven or hell depending on how we've responded to Jesus in this life. Whether we choose to believe that or not, if Christians are right, that's what will happen. If atheists are right, there will be nothing after death. But it's a logical impossibility that all of those things can be true. They can't all be true at the same time. Only one of those worldviews can be true and right. And Jesus makes this exclusive claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to live. He's the truth. He is the one who gives life. And he is the only way to God. And this morning, if you've yet to give your life to Jesus, then can I challenge you and encourage you to do so? And if you're still trying to work out, well, which of these views is true? You know, is it possible to hold two or three things in tension? Or is there a right way? Is there, is there just one way? Well, can I encourage you? Read about Jesus from the Bible. Find out about Jesus. Find out what he said. And I'd encourage you ultimately to give your life to Jesus because Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. And that makes Jesus either a lunatic and a liar and a madman, or it makes him the truth. He can't be both. We can't hold this nice idea that Jesus can say such exclusive things and yet be just a nice teacher. If he's just a nice teacher, well, actually, he's a lunatic and a madman and a liar. He can't, hold, he can't be both of those things. If Jesus is who he said he is, if he's the only way to God, that demands that we get ourselves in a right relationship with God through him. So I'd encourage you and challenge you this morning, if you've never done that, find out more about Jesus and ultimately give your life to him so that you can have that wonderful relationship with God through the Lord Jesus. Most of us here today are Christians. We, we are followers of Jesus. We've trusted in him. We've surrendered our lives to him. But, you know, it's very easy for us still to have a wrong worldview or to be influenced by other worldviews other than the biblical worldview. And often we don't even realize that we're being influenced by other worldviews. We think of ourselves as Christians. We would claim and profess to be a Christian and believe that we have a biblical worldview. But actually, a non-Christian or a non-biblical worldview can often be massively influential in our lives without us realizing it. 
It's really important that we all realize we all have a worldview. We've all been brought up with a particular worldview. And even if we're brought up in a Christian home, we will still have a faulty worldview to some degree or other because we're massively influenced by our education system, by the culture we live in, and by others around us. And all of those things will give us a wrong worldview. What often tends to happen is that when people trust in Jesus, what they simply do is add a layer of Christianity onto their existing worldview. They add a layer of a a kind of biblical worldview on top of their pre-existing worldview. But their existing worldview still massively influences how they think and how they behave to a significant degree. When what we need to do actually is have a significant and decisive break from our past to, to turn our back on our old worldview and embrace fully a biblical worldview. Paul writes these words in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, in other words, our old worldview, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We need to make a conscious break with our past. And we need to be continuously be renewing our minds, because it's not just a one-off decision. Yes, it is for salvation, but we're continuously being influenced by all sorts of other worldviews and competing voices. So there needs to be that regular daily uh, decision to say, I'm going to choose a biblical worldview rather than a false worldview. We need to be renewing our minds with God's word, the Bible, the truth, so that our worldview is a biblical worldview and that it continues to be a biblical worldview. Because otherwise we'll find ourselves being influenced by non-biblical worldviews without even realizing it. So this is how it works. We need to renew our minds with the truth of the Bible, as Paul says in Romans 12.2. And we do that by reading it. Write this on your outline. We do this by reading it, by studying it, by meditating on it, and applying it to our lives. If God's word is truth, which it claims to be, then the way that we renew our minds is by soaking ourselves in that truth. A friend of mine says, you know, everybody is brainwashed. The, The question is, what are we washing our brains with? We're all brainwashed. The question is, what are we washing our brains with? Are we washing our minds with the truth of God's word? Are we washing our minds with other stuff, which is ultimately uh, deceiving and and deceitful, will take us away from God's way? So we need to make that choice to renew our minds, and we do that by reading God's word, by studying it, by meditating on it, and then by making that choice to apply it to our lives. You know, the islanders reached wrong conclusions about what happened to Paul because their worldview was faulty. It was wrong. The sailors trusted in false gods to keep them safe because their worldview was wrong. They were massively animistic in their worldview. But we can so easily allow ourselves to be influenced by non-biblical worldviews. The Bible teaches us that God is in control. And, and I think if we're followers of Jesus this morning, we'd all say, yeah, we believe that. We believe God is in control. We believe God is sovereign. And yet, you know, it staggers me still to find Christians who read their star signs as they're reading through the newspaper. Christians still reading their star signs, believing and proclaiming on the one hand that God is sovereign and God is in control, and yet on the other hand still with one foot in the old world, still with an an old worldview. The Bible teaches that God is in control, yet some Christians are still very superstitious Avoiding walking under ladders, or or, or they say touch wood as they tap a piece of wood for good luck. That's a Christian being influenced by animism. 
Now, most Christians will be outraged to be accused of being an animist or being influenced by animism, but every time we engage in some kind of superstitious practice, touch wood or, or, or don't put my umbrella up under, uh, inside or avoiding this date or that, or that, that is animism. That's what superstitions and good luck are. There's, there's no such thing as luck. That's animism. And when we are buying into that, when we say those things, even if we're perhaps without thinking in it, we are, we are being influenced by an animistic worldview. We say we believe in a God of miracles and we believe that God performs miracles, yet we don't pray to God to perform miracles. And, and when we don't do that, that's a Christian being influenced by a modern worldview. We say we believe in a supernatural, all-powerful God, but when we then kind of park that and say, well, that's true, but then I'm just going to carry on doing what I was doing, what we're basically doing is saying we're being influenced more by modernity than we are by a biblical worldview. We say we believe in spiritual warfare and the reality of Satan, and yet then we dismiss anything that seems out of the ordinary or anything that is is supernatural, and we explain everything away because everything is rational and logical and, and reasonable. That's a Christian being influenced by a modern worldview. Some things happen, and I've seen some crazy stuff happen, supernatural, paranormal things which are ultimately uh, demonic. But most Christians I know will immediately, don't be silly, of course it doesn't happen. That's modernity. That's a Christian being influenced by a modern worldview instead of a biblical worldview. We say that we'll believe that we will spend eternity with Jesus, and yet we live as if this life is all that matters. We pursue wealth and possessions and, and prestige. That's a Christian being influenced by atheistic materialism, living as if there's just this life and, and filling our life with pleasures, even if we don't realize it. We say we believe in the exclusive message of the gospel, that there is only one way to heaven, and then we say things like, well, who am I to tell somebody else that they're wrong? Who am I to tell somebody that they need to believe in Jesus? I don't have the right to force my opinions on anybody else. You know, I, I need permission to do that. That's nonsense. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus has given us permission. In fact, he commands us to tell other people about him. We don't need permission to do that. It's a lie. That's Christians being influenced by postmodernism. Yes, we need to be respectful of other people. There's a right place and a right time. Absolutely. But ultimately, when we fall for this lie that everybody's view is, is equally valid, we're being influenced, we're buying into postmodernism. It's so easy for us to be influenced by non-biblical worldviews without even realizing it. We are constantly taking in information from all around us, and, and that information will nearly always be contrary to what the Bible teaches. So we've got to be careful about what we listen to. We've got to be careful what we watch and what we read. We need to wash our minds with God's word, the Bible. And if we keep soaking ourselves in the truth of the Bible, then the lies of this world will be seen for what they are. And we don't need to focus on the lies. Our job is to focus on the truth. People in banks don't uh, focus on fake notes. They focus on the real notes because if if you know what a real note looks like, you can spot the fake. You don't need to spend hours uh, training yourself to find a fake banknote. Focus on the and train yourself to spot a true banknote and you will spot a fake one. And the same is true for us. We need to focus on the truth because then we can spot lies when they come to us. And you think, hang on a second, that statement, that thought, that that kind of approach, that doesn't fit with the Bible. Yes, I'm going to respect that person, but I'm going to respectfully disagree. And I'm not going to allow myself to be influenced by that, whatever that might be. And so for us, as we seek to follow Jesus, we need to constantly and continuously be feeding on the truth, reading it, studying it, 
meditating on it and applying it to our lives. It's not easy to do because we're, so, we're bombarded with competing worldviews all the time. And by standing on a biblical worldview, it will often make us stand out and it will put us in difficult positions and, and it won't always be easy for us. That's the call, is to have a biblical worldview. So that we're building our lives on God's word, have a biblical worldview rather than building our lives on that which is false and ending up with a non-biblical worldview. We're just going to take a moment to pause and reflect on what we've said this morning. A lot of kind of stuff to process, I guess. But let me just take a moment and just bow our heads, close our eyes and just have a moment of quiet before God. I encourage you this morning just to reach out to God and and just to ask the Holy Spirit to show you perhaps ways in which you've been deceived and have bought into a false worldview, a non-biblical worldview, which has then driven your behavior and your lifestyle, perhaps in in ways that you hadn't thought about before. Just ask God to to speak to you and and reveal that to you this morning. And if that's you and and that's all of us in in reality because it's constantly happening to us, if you're aware of something specific, then in this moment now, just, just repent and, and name that for what it is before God in, in the quietness of your heart. Maybe you want to take that decisive step, that once and for all step to reject all other worldviews and put your trust in Jesus for the very first time. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and if that's you this morning, then I would encourage you to take that step this morning. To repent, to turn your back on your old life and to trust in Jesus. I'm going to pray and then the band are going to come up and just lead us in a final song just to help us continue to respond. I'm going to sing that again, the king of my heart. But let's just pray uh, this morning. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that the Lord Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Thank you that, God, you are in control. You are sovereign. Thank you that you are truth and all your ways and all your words are true. Help us, we pray, Father, to see things that are not true. Help us to be aware of those areas in our lives which we are building upon false truth, lies ultimately, wrong worldviews. Show them to us, we pray. Help us to root those things out, to commit ourselves to your truth. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that we can have a relationship with the one who is the way, the truth and the life. Thank you that we can be for all eternity, united with you through the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be the one who inspires us. You're the the one who's the wind in our lives, the one who is the power, the, the truth, the energy within us, moving us forward, driving us forward, so that we build our lives upon you and not upon things which are sinking sand and, and shifting. Help us, we pray, Lord Jesus, to build our lives upon your truth. You are that cornerstone, that solid rock, that immovable rock. Help us to choose you, we pray, today and every day. So, Father, bless us. Help us now as we just uh, worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.